The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Whether you're looking at buying your first car or your dream car, auto purchases are big investments. But Navy Federal Credit Union makes it simple with their fast and easy auto loan process. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. Hanging out with the guys in the studio. Are y'all ready for Shark Week this week? Isn't everybody already supposed started, to be ready man? For I got Shark that's week? one thing I have on my calendar that I have that I have a reminder of. What's funny though, you're not a fan of sharks, right? No, but Shark Week, you're about. I love everything about them. I don't know what's a weird conundrum I got going on with the shark <laughs> deal, man. I think because they're just dang powerful. Jaws jacked me up. All right, if y'all want to know the truth, that noise, the music, and everything, I hear it every time I get in the water. So it, even in even in a, in a pond, in a pond, pool, just bathtub, feel it. It's all there. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I've got a Patreon question of the day. If aliens landed on Earth tomorrow and offered to take you home with them, would you go? Hell no. Absolutely not. Yeah, no, I'd probably say no. How about you? I'm staying put. I know. Right? <laughs> Is that all they say? It's all they, yeah. yeah. No, no. You're like, no, I need more. I need a lot more info. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, right what's here. it look like on the other side? Where are we going? We're coming back. Yeah, are we coming back? <laughs> Is it a long ride? Is it yeah. over three hours? How's the flight? Does the seat recline? Because <laughs> I, I broke down this weekend and went against my diet and hammered an entire bag of Cheetos. There was a couple. Those co- are so there, good. There was a couple cocktails before the hand beforehand, but th- I was digging through my in-laws' pantry for I would just had had I just needed something to eat. And they, I, they, I mean, went a big bag of Cheetos and I blistered it. I mean, by myself. Good for you. <laughs> so aliens probably don't have Cheetos. I'm not going. I'm not going if there's no Cheetos. That's all I gotta say about that. Uh, that's awesome. Hey, we got a great guest in store today. Sebastian Younger is the number one New York Times bestselling author of *The Perfect Storm*, *Fire*, *A Death in Belmont*, *War*, *Tribe*, and *Freedom*. He is also a documentary filmmaker and the founder and director of Vets Town Hall. Sebastian, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. I've been looking forward to this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It's good. I'm, we're glad to have you in in the cage, bro. Thanks for showing up. Yeah. So here's the deal, man. We're gonna get started, bro. You wanna? Yeah, so we want to cover just reading all your books and everything that you've you've exposed yourself to. We like to talk about. Yeah, thanks for your service too, by the way. Doing that, seriously. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, a lot of I appreciate that. You're welcome. That that is so heartfelt. And I, you know, Restrepo was really hard for me to get through. I didn't watch the whole thing. I could, I, I turned off every time. You really brought that one. <laughs> brought that one to the living rooms, of people, so they could really get an understanding of what all that looked like. We talk about never quit stories. I, I would imagine being out there with those guys, first and foremost, that, and I'd like to follow up at, after this, just you, are you still in touch with those guys? Yeah, with some of them, you know, there was 40 guys or whatever in the platoon, and I was closer to some than others. 
Yeah, it's uh, particularly Brendan O'Byrne, like he was a real buddy out there and, and remains so. And we're, we're in very close touch. Yeah, we're really completely part of each other's lives. All right, let's back this up a little bit, man. Let's start from uh, a little background from the beginning, how you got into all this. Because uh, your, your life uh, growing up, man, and, and where you, what you've done and what you've been through and what you contribute all has to start from somewhere, man. And that's kind of people like hearing that. Give us yeah, a little background. Yeah, of course. Well, listen, I can roll it way back and tell you how I first got into writing. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting. I was an anthropology major in college, and I was a I was a pretty good distance runner, right? And I was the top runner at my college. And uh, if I can boast for a moment, I ran 412 for the mile when I was young, which won't get you to the Olympics, but it's like a pretty good time. That's and, respectable. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I, running was my thing. And I and I heard that the Navajo, on the Navajo reservation, on the, the Navajo Nation had amazing runners, Right. And so I thought I would write an anthropology thesis on Navajo running, traditional Navajo running. And I spent a summer out there training with their best guys. And I wrote this thesis and I was a sort of lackluster student in college, but writing the thesis was the most exciting thing I'd ever done. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a journalist. That's, you know, I went somewhere, researched something and wrote about it. That sounds like journalism. So that was my um, sort of um, uh, muddled path into journalism. It took me a long time to to figure it out. I, I I wound up working as a climber for tree companies. So I'd work 80, 100 feet in the air with a chainsaw hanging on a rope, taking trees down from the top down. And, you know, it's pretty dangerous work. And That's I real had, dangerous. That's yeah, extremely dangerous. Tell you what, it's totally safe until you make a mistake and then it gets real dangerous. Like uh. that's, how, that's how it works. And I made a mistake and I hit my leg with the chainsaw and tore it up. And while I was thinking of I, I know I rappelled down and my crew took me to the hospital and I was okay, but I was limping around for a couple of months and I was living in the fishing town of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And, uh, and I thought maybe, um, you know, a huge storm hit Gloucester and it sank a local boat named the Andrea Gale. And so I thought maybe I'll write a book about dangerous jobs and I'll, and I'll have one chapter on the Andrea Gale. And that's how I came to write the perfect storm. And in the middle of all that, I was interested in war reporting, and I went off to, to Sarajevo, which was under siege in 1993 by Serb forces. And it was a, you know, a city of half a million people just getting shelled and sniped at every day for three straight years. They killed or wounded at one-fifth of the civilian population of that city. And this is in Europe, right? This is right next door to Vienna. Yeah. And so I was there for about six months, and, um, and it got me interested in war reporting. And I managed to get myself to Afghanistan in 1996 when the Taliban were taken over. And then I was back there again with Ahmad Shah Massoud and the Northern Alliance while he was fighting the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Yeah. And uh, and then after 9-11, I started going back and wound up with U.S. forces at this little outpost called Restrepo. And basically, my colleague and I, Tim Hetherington, you know, we we each had a video camera and we taped everything we could and you know, just let the situation and the men speak for themselves and tried to get out of the way, basically. And that's how the film Restrepo came to be. On your first tour, when you went, when you went overseas and your first war reporting, did, did you have a point of contact over there or did you just literally how did you get into that? show I mean, up? That's, that's, I managed to get myself into Afghanistan and, and Serbia. I'm like, hold on, man. Wait, you just kind of glossed over a whole bunch of stuff, bro. Back it up. <laughs> no, I mean, you don't, I mean, I mean, if you're working with U.S. forces, you know, you can have a point of contact because there's a whole bureaucracy and infrastructure and 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 command to to connect to. But if you just go, you know, there's a war and there was a war in eastern Ethiopia right now. Like, I mean, you would to go cover that, you'd have to to make contact somehow with the Tigrayan forces that are fighting the Ethiopian government. And 
you know, they'd have some press officer somewhere, but you know, you're, it's up to you to figure out who it is. So, you know, when I went over there, Afghanistan was in civil war, much like the civil war that's probably coming again now. And there was a nominal government in Kabul. And so, we, you know, the, we did, they didn't know we were coming or anything. We took a Red Cross flight into Kabul from Pakistan. And, um, and you know, as soon as we hit the ground, we made contact with the government and got some kind of, you know, press pass or whatever. Like, I mean, you, it's, all this stuff is so jury rigged, you have to understand. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, then basically we could do what we want. So no, you're totally on your own. You, there's nothing, there's no network, you know, you're, you're on your own over there. Do you have support and the backing of the, the American government while you're, you're on you? Do you fall into the status forces agreement or are you just, hey, you didn't no, come this, over here on installation, you're out? No, no, no. I mean, if some, look, if they'd imprisoned me, if they charged me with spying or something or whatever, you know, the government would do the best to get me out. But I, I don't think they had an embassy in there. I mean, you know, probably the closest embassy was Pakistan. I I imagine Pakistani officials in Afghanistan might have tried to get me out. I'm not sure. But no, no, no. You, there's no, you, the U.S. government has nothing to do with this. I mean, it, if you decide to, I mean, we were just traveling. We were traveling. Essentially, we were travelers, but we were travelers to a war-torn country. And the U.S. government has nothing to do with it. Right. Kind of at your will, right? At your leisure. Buddy, that's brazen. <laughs> and that all started because you started talk, writing about running. Well, if you trace it back far enough, yeah, um, that got me writing. And then, you know, my experience as a climber doing tree work got me thinking about dangerous jobs. And, you know, there's jobs in this country. I mean, drilling for oil and logging and commercial fishing, all kinds of things that are, you know, they're, that have the, the, uh, the mortality rate or the injury rate of many combat forces, right? I mean, some of these jobs are really dangerous and the, and the nation needs them done and no one really pays a whole lot of attention. It's, it's mostly working class guys who aren't very well paid and the nation isn't really paying them much attention. This Why is do you think that is? Years ago. Uh, why so, is that? Why is that, that, that shit like the hardest, most miserable jobs that people, do, we demand on ourselves? Are the lowest yeah. paying and the less, and they don't even, we don't even, I wonder why that is. Well, now that they put it on TV, I mean, you see, you see Deadliest Catch and everything. Now it's kind of, now you can see it and you can appreciate it. They monetized it because they can sell advertising by watching, watching people do dangerous stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? That's TV. That's season. I mean, those guys are still making whatever they're making, pulling in a fish. And, you know, logging is super dangerous. Oh my God, logging is so, so dangerous. Drilling for oil. I mean, I I know a guy. He just passed away. He's older guy, but he worked in Texas. And when he was a young guy in the oil fields, they had a they had an explosion, and he looked down, and all he was wearing was his boots and his belt. It bur it flash burned the clothes right off him. And they couldn't, they couldn't even get him to a hospital for two days. They just put him on morphine and waited for him to die, and he didn't die. He was a tough bastard. Apparently, and, and, and uh, you know, that's a great story. Sixties probably. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That'd be a good reality check, wouldn't it? Hey, were you actually out, clothes, were you actually out um, in mass during the perfect storm? Say again? When the perfect storm hit, when you wrote the book, I mean, were you out? Were you, did you live out there during I was all living that? in Gloucester. Yeah. Um, I was living in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where the, the boat that was lost, Andrea Gale, was from Gloucester. So I was, I was living in Gloucester. I was working as a climber for tree companies. And, uh, and when the storm hit, I was limping around from a chainsaw injury, and I heard about this boat. And I went down to the local, the bar. The mother of the guy, one of the men who died, 
was the bartender at a local fisherman's bar. And I went down there and introduced myself and, um, and they were, they were super friendly. They checked, they, you know, they sniffed, sniffed me out a bit to make sure I was an okay guy. And, and the mom decided, okay, I'm going to talk to this guy. And she did. And, and otherwise there would be no book. Ethel, Ethel Shatford was her name. Amazing great, book, great, great, great movie Story. too. Movie too. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Well done. That one kind of hits close to home considering Wahlberg. Yeah. Did well, your mark too. That, that movie. Absolutely. But I, I, I like, yeah, I loved watching that movie. It was good. Did you know that the mortality rate for veterans, the suicide rate is higher than we just surpassed? More veterans have died from suicide than died in the war. Now we just got that number. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's all tragic. Whatever mark, wherever that mark falls, every one of those deaths is tragic. I mean, what I would say about suicide, I mean, I have an aunt who took her own life. My best friend took his own life. I mean, unfortunately, most Americans have an experience with suicide. And, you know, what I would say about veteran suicide, a really important thing is to look at what age these veterans are taking their lives at. I mean, my understanding, at least when I did some research some years ago, is that the majority of veteran suicides are Vietnam era veterans, which what that raises is the issue that the the one some of the problems that are leading these people to, to make that terrible choice might be associated with aging and job loss and poor health and loss of marriages and things like that. So you just have to if you want to cure the problem, you got to make sure you understand what the what the um, <clears throat> the forces are that are working on these people. And if they're older vets, then that it may not be a combat issue. It might be a life issue that comes at the end of life. It seems to be generational. Now it's World War II, we're moving in, coming out of Korea, into Vietnam. Now we're going into Gulf War. Right, and right. So, I think there's a narrative of young, young people coming back from the war in Afghanistan, very traumatized from combat and taking their own life as a direct product of that trauma. And I, and of course that happens. I mean, trauma, trauma is, is devastating and combat is a huge stress on anybody. Um, and if you are already struggling with some psychological demons, like that can, that can definitely put people over the edge. But I think it's very important to understand like that, that narrative that the public has for understandable reasons isn't, doesn't necessarily reflect this the actual statistics about who takes their life and, and when in their lives. Right. What's uh, I, I wanted to ask you this before we kick this thing off, just to put it, what, out of everything that all, everything, all the experiences you had, there's gotta be one. There's gotta be one story that sticks out. You're of, Oh my God, this actually happened. Yeah. I, I mean, oh God, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to pick one out. Um, I mean, I was in Liberia during the Civil War and the and and the rebels were besieging the capital and the government, a totally corrupt Charles Taylor government, um, detained me and interrogated me and and accused me of being a spy and kicked me out of the country, knowing that I couldn't leave because the capital was besieged. And then they started coming after they they, they came to, to get me the next day, knowing I couldn't leave the country and I'd violated their terms. And I went into hiding and I remember being on the roof of the hotel. Um, you know, the capital's besieged, mortar, mortar rounds are coming in, the dead and wounded people everywhere. And I'm on the roof of the hotel hiding from the security forces, smoking a cigarette, looking maybe 300 yards away to, to the U.S. Embassy and the American flag and thinking if I could just get there, I would be safe and I can't even freaking get there. And it was a it was a moment in my life. 
I was absolutely terrified. Way scarier than any combat I was in with U.S. forces in, in some ways, you know, because I was totally on my own on that roof. Well, I mean, I was with Massoud in 2000 fighting the Taliban, right? I mean, that was extraordinary experience. We got shelled so hard they killed our horses uh, at one point. You know, we were out on a front line with Massoud's forces and we took an hour of Katyusha rocket fire without any return fire on our side. We had no, they had no artillery and we just got spanked for an hour and, and, you know, we were able to get down into the dirt, but the horses couldn't. And, uh, yeah, that sticks out in my mind. The first time I had PTSD was coming back from that. And I would I would panic in the New York subway for some reason. I didn't understand why. And I realized, oh, finally, I realized, oh, it was Afghanistan. That's why I keep panicking in small spaces with too many people. It, but it took a long time for me to figure that out. How'd you get off that hotel roof? Uh, eventually, the security forces left the hotel. You know, I'd fled up there because I saw them come in Chucky Taylor was Charles Taylor's psychopath son. And he had these, these sort of private security forces of his own that were known for torturing people. And I mean, he's a total, total psychopath. He's in, he's in jail and in, he's in prison in Florida right now for war crimes. Um, but um, he rode into the hotel on an ATV with an RPG strapped across his back and aviator goggles on and a whole crew of um, psychopaths behind him. And, uh, I assumed they were coming after me. And so I fled up onto the roof. And after those guys left, um, I just ran. I ran to the embassy and I said, look, they're going to they're looking for me and you got to do something. And so the the U.S. government actually called Charles Taylor and said, you cannot touch this guy and we're going to get him out of the country. And I was actually gotten out on a con. They 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 ran a, 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 a convoy through the front lines um, filled with people, you know, vulnerable people. And, and I was one of them. And they busted through the, 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 the front lines outside the city and through the rebel lines. And uh, they hired local fighters front and back on that convoy to get them through uh, all the way to Roberts Fields, which was the airstrip outside of town. And I got a Red Cross flight out of there. Um, and, I, you know, even on the tarmac, a Liberian official saw my passport and said, you're the American spy. And I grabbed my passport and started running and I sprinted onto the plane and we took off. It was really freaking close. And I had, man, I was messed up for months after that. I got, I got out to Paris and I was sitting in the cafe, smoking a cigarette and drinking a coffee, waiting for my girlfriend. To, she was meeting me in Paris. And, um, uh, and I saw some guys carrying a mattress across the street. You know how hard it is to carry a heavy mattress? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it sags in exactly the same way that a body does, right? A mattress and a body, they're kind of, they're both hard to carry for similar reasons, right? They're floppy and they're heavy. And I saw these guys carrying a mattress across the street and I saw a mattress, right? I knew it was a mattress, but my someplace primitive in my brain reacted as if it was a body and I went into full-blown panic mode on the freaking ground, right? Even though I knew it was a mattress, somewhere I knew it was a mattress, but I reacted as if it was a body and I was back in combat and I was shaking for the next half hour. And that was, you know, when I wrote about PTSD some years later, I remember that moment where you can tell yourself all day long, this, you don't need to be scared of this. It's a mattress, calm down. But somewhere deep in your body, you're like, uh-uh, I'm not falling for this again. I am getting on the ground. And I, it was a real uh, sort of learning moment for me, that moment in Paris. People always ask, because you get in one of those moments, and you, and you have multiple. 
And then afterwards, the stress coming back out, it was just kind of like calming back down. It's like the energy gets so fired up inside of us and that fuel that it just it starts burning internally and just keeps going. It just takes a long time for that stuff to settle down. And then we go back. Yeah. And I say way with someone I heard it explained is the same way with a woman when she has a kid. Like you, that's the worst thing I've ever. That's the most pain I've ever seen anybody go through. And then a few months later, they're ready to do it again. I'm like how do you, how do you explain that, man? I'm like, and that's the same way it is with us with guys like us. Yeah, I mean, what I would say about combat is if you're um, if you're a soldier, right? If you're a fighter, if you're a warrior of any sort carrying a weapon, in combat you're proactive. Right, you have agency. You affect the outcome. You're trained to affect the outcome and come out okay. If you're a journalist or an aid worker or a medic or I don't know what, uh, you know, like Doctors Without Borders, or Red Cross, or whatever, you're in these situations w- without. You don't have agency, right? You do not. You cannot affect the outcome other than avoiding something bad. So that that's both good and bad. You know, there there, there is a a potentially a moral burden in killing other people, even enemy, right? But there's also a sense of empowerment if you're carrying a weapon and can protect yourself. I never had to deal with the moral burden of killing, right? I just, you know, God says killing's bad and et cetera. I never had to deal with that. I, I, don't, I don't, never carried a gun, right? But I also don't have agency. I can't affect the outcome. The only thing I can do is get out of there if things are dangerous. And so, there, so the, the, the um, trauma is slightly it's different and the and the call to go back is slightly different for journalists or for fighters like it's a slightly different experience explain that so, yeah i think i agree with you i, I understand exactly yeah. what you're saying with that agency and that, that commitment to to getting back in and it's it's like this is what we do it's yeah. that drive to do it and the that experience is experience it's like the further we go along through it and it's it's you can it's reading something and then applying it are two different things. And then when you go out there and you apply it, the tougher the situation, it kind of, it condenses us, man. It sharpens us. It's like forging steel. It's like the harder you've been hit, the, the harder you can get hit. And then when you go back out, it, 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 you see the situations unfolding. And since you've been in more than, than what's presenting itself, you remain calm. And when everyone else is kind of freaking out. You know, there was an interesting statistic that I read and I'm, I'm now I'm going back some years in my memory. Um, it was from the uh, Israeli military. And what they found was that the really highly trained special forces who were taking the brunt of the combat on the front lines, they would obviously have a higher casualty rate uh, than the support units. Um, But per casualty, per capita, they had lower trauma rates. And then the rear base units, they had much lower levels of casualty, much lower risks, uh, but disproportionately high trauma, right? And the theory was from the Israeli psychologists was that being highly trained gives you a sense of agency, gives you a sense of being able to affect the outcome of what's happening. And that insulates you from trauma. And if if you're in a support unit, you're in a much more passive role. It'd be more like being a journalist. You you don't you don't you, 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 there's nothing to fight. You you can't fight. You just have to wait and see what happens. And that even with relatively low levels of casualties, like the occasional mortar round lands in your base, and that's it. Even with fairly low levels of casualties, there's a disproportionate trauma rate because you don't have much agency. And so I think that's very very important. And you know I know from experience if you just like randomly shock subjects, they're way more tra- traumatized 
than if you tell them I'm going to shock you one, you know, once a minute and they can prepare for it. And I think that that sort of I can prepare for it feeling describes, you know, frontline combat units very, very well. And the sort of random shocking that would describe a rear base unit where that's just getting randomly shelled occasionally. That's very, very hard to adjust to. Oh, sure. It's like back home with every, every, every other person we got around. They don't, if you don't see something ever, if it's not common to you, then it will always, it'll freak you out with us. When they throw us out there, it's like death becomes and chaos becomes such a part of it that it's, we adapt. Humans, yeah, man, humans amazing. Are, yeah, humans are adaptive, and particularly in groups. You know, we're social primates, right? There's nothing we can't do in a group. Right. And there's very few things we can do by ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, any anytime you're in danger and you're alone, it is way, way fr- more frightening. Oh, than it's so the- much more frightening. <laughs> Isn't right? it? Yeah. I mean, you know, you so much, it's completely different. It's completely yeah. different when your ass is alone. Like when, yeah. when stuff goes down, you got yeah. your buddies with you. It's like, ah, right, we're still always good. We were always good. It's That's just, right. It's like a different gland or, or a chemical altogether yeah. that shoots through you when you're alone and that fear comes in. That hunt when you're being hunted. I tell you what, being alone is not being alone and in danger is not exciting. Right? <laughs> no, it's not right. No one wants, no one wants to go back to that. It's right? not I even a cool story. To that, that, roof, <laughs> that, that hotel roof in Liberia. I don't want to go back to that, right? I was totally by myself, right? I mean, the only friend I had was a pack of cigarettes. Jesus, right? Like no one wants that. And but but with your brothers, with your buddies, what won't you face? And and facing that threat down and coming out okay might be one of the most intoxicating experiences a person can have. You know, arguably that and having a child, I would say. That's a great that's a great perspective. It is, mm-hmm. right? When you come out of that, it's it's like when you watch sports teams win something, the way they celebrate with each other, even though it was chaos for us, you come down out of it. The celebration is life itself, that we're still together. And then after a while, we start talking about it because I mean, it has to gurgle around in your head just when it went down. And then yeah. when you kind of see it, someone will start talking about it and you're like, Oh yeah, it was crazy. And then we start grinning. Like, I can't believe we lived through that. It was amazing. That's right. That's right. No, I know. I mean, watch the difference between a football team or a soccer team celebrating and a tennis player, the tennis player is by himself or by herself, right? It's a totally different. You can just watch and see it's a totally different experience of winning. Uh, same way with golf, right? You just see them, you're like, yeah, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. That's cool. You had a uh, <laughs> you had a pretty major. I'm a brain guy. You had a pretty pretty bad run last summer, huh? I did. I mean, oh I yeah, was, man. We're glad you're still here. By the way, I, good to see you. You look great. Yeah, <laughs> man. You look great. It's good. To, I'm a tough Thank son you. of a bitch, man. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. When you asked what was the, the thing that sticks out most in my mind. I was tempted, and I can tell the story if you like, of what happened. I was tempted to answer with what happened last year. I mean, I've been in a lot of danger at different points in my career as a journalist. I stopped war reporting after my buddy Tim got killed in Libya. and uh, But the most danger I've ever been in was in my own driveway. And I had a um, last summer, you know, I'm in good health. I run a lot. I box like I'm a healthy guy, 59, like I'm squared away. And uh, the um, I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery in my abdomen asymptomatic undiagnosed and just a silent killer it wasn't it was a congenital it was a congenital thing right there's nothing to do with cholesterol or anything like that right this is just a a a deformity in the artery in one artery and it ballooned out it had a weak spot and it ballooned out 
And a year ago in June, it burst and I started bleeding out into my own abdomen. So if you get stabbed or shot, the medics know where the wound is. They know where to what they know what to plug, right? They can go in and clamp the artery. They can do all kinds of stuff. If you haven't been wounded, if you're just bleeding out internally, they don't know where to start looking, right? And uh, I was going to ask you uh, how they even found that. That's amazing. In time to save your well, life. I, yeah, and uh, you know, I got two little girls. I got a four year old, and a four and a half, and one and a half. Who I love more than anything. And the most traumatizing thing that's ever happened to me was finding out when I woke up in the ICU the next day that I'd almost died. And that in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, forget about me almost dying. My little girls almost lost their daddy. I mean, that was foremost in my mind of, that was the upsetting thing. And my wife almost lost her husband. And uh, so, so I, you know, I started bleeding out into my abdomen. I just had this sort of sharp pain in my yeah, belly. Was it, did was you like, feel that? Did it hurt? What that, what that feel like? Did you... It hurt, but I mean, kidney stones hurt more, right? I mean, it, I was just like, oh, Jesus, what is that? That's some indigestion, damn. Like, But I couldn't get comfortable, right? And I stood up to walk around, and I almost couldn't keep my feet. And, um, you know, within about 10 minutes, I started going blind, and I couldn't stand up. And the blood was just draining out of me. It was all po uh, pooling in my abdomen. And uh, it took them 90 minutes. Almost nobody survives this, right? This is real... Very, very few people survive this. It's a very rare thing, and almost no one survives. It took them 90 minutes to get me to the hospital. Hey, wow. the why, 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 why? I got there. I just, I, I, the hospital's 45 minutes away, and it took them a while to get here. I mean, it just took a while. And uh, I, uh, I, by the time they got me there, I That makes for a better story now that it was 90 minutes, though. Yeah, With you, Sebastian, it's always going to be something crazy, man. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's, I, they, I needed nine units of blood. I was, I was losing a, I was losing a unit of blood every ten minutes. I lost ninety percent of my blood, nine zero, ninety percent of my blood. They cut a hole in my neck to get put a large gauge line in, and I just say I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. My dad was a physicist. I don't believe in anything that I can't measure or test. Right and. As I was, and I knew I was, I mean, I I knew something bad was going on. I started, I was getting pulled into this black pit underneath me. And uh, I, the last thing I said to the doctor was he was working on my neck, cutting my neck open. The last thing I said to the doctor was, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. And my dead father showed up, up, up above me, starting, trying to comfort me, trying to, trying to engage me. Like right. not right now, not right now, Dad. I got something. And, going. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, I don't. I, I, you know, he's dead, right? I was like, I, I didn't want to have anything. I love him, right? But I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And um, I can't explain why he was there because I didn't know I was dying. I don't know what he was doing there. And I looked into it. Like a lot of people with near death experiences don't know they're dying, but invariably, very, very common, a dead relative shows up to comfort them or tell them to go back or whatever it may be, and. They uh, they 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 put ten units of blood into me, and they it took them six hours using a fluoroscope and a catheter, and they finally figured out where the leak was, and they embolized it, and they saved my life. And uh, I just I was I'm still traumatized by it. The fact that you could die in your own driveway in front of your family is so upsetting. It's way more upsetting upsetting than getting shot in combat. Yeah, of course. Of course, ninety. 10, yeah, nine, they gave 90, you an extra unit. Ninety I, that, units just, and they just delete. <clears throat> so I didn't know where all that went. 
when all that blood pools up inside your body, uh, you may have been unconscious, but it goes down. Yeah. Into, I got to imagine, I saw a guy, I was sitting there with, with a guy, and all he had a bleed in his guts, and it all drained down for a man, goes right into his scrotum. Yeah, you can bleed, you bleed out your pelvis, and that's exactly what it most, wow. most people aren't aware of the fact that you, you can bleed, bleed out in your femur. Yeah, you hey, can. That doctor rolled that sheet back on that guy, and it looked like a basketball. Yeah. I was yeah. like, is that normal? And they're like, that's where it goes. I, You know, it didn't on me. Like, I, I was just in my abdomen. I had a huge hematoma. Um, now, I was horizontal the whole time. I don't yeah, know that yeah, affects But. Yeah, it was, it was it was in my abdomen, around my viscera, on, on my back, like around my kidneys. It's God, really stressed out. Like a SOB. I know you don't believe in things you can't see or measure, man, but love, you can't see or measure that. And I that it, it has to be your your, your love of life. Because your stories are incredible. Just yeah, your, not the stories you write about. You I mean, the, the biggest thing about it, the most impressive thing to, to me about your, your is you. You don't ever talk about that part. You talk about everything else, but just in itself, the nature of the path that you walk is unbelievable. Somebody ought to write a book about you. Especially without a damn weapon. Somebody ought to write a book about you. You you know what I mean? In in those places where you accidentally get yourself into these civil wars and just to to watch, to to journalize, you know, to tell that story, man, and then going through that. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, let me just you know, call out to my brothers and sisters in the, in the profession. There's a lot of people, a lot of journalists like me, men and women, both who have have run a lot of risks to tell the world what's going on in the world. And many of like my buddy, Tim, many of them have paid the price they've died. Right. And so I, you know, I would say on the spectrum of, of, of foreign reporters, you know, I'm at the low end. I mean, there are people that have done this for 20 years straight, nonstop. That wasn't me. Like I know, I know guys who have taken risks that I, would give me nightmares just to know about. And uh, so I appreciate the compliment, but understand there's a whole regiment of people out there doing this. Oh, yeah. This. I was going to ask, man, do y'all have y'all's own unif- patch, like war correspondent training facility? Like instru- yeah. like the guys who go through and sit back now, that what you've seen, because, I mean, it's, it is. It's, it, it's completely different than any other kind of journalism. Yeah, I mean, you got you know, you earn your patch by being in the wars. There's no training. There's no, I mean, I mean, I didn't have any training. I wound up in Sarajevo, and I wouldn't say it was super dangerous or anything. But you know, if you if you've never been mortared or shot at before, you get you get kind of jumpy, right? And I was there by myself. I mean, I wasn't part of a unit. I was just there on my own. Yeah, but you kind of are, man, because y'all share the stories. You hear each other where they're at and what you're talking about and what you're writing about. Everyone hears the exploits of. You sit up on top of that that roof, getting hunted down by the by the by the crazed son uh, of a of a leader of a place, man. That's that's amazing. That's a that's a great story. That was a lonely moment. That was a lonely moment. <laughs> right? My buddy, the the buddy I was there with, uh, he's Dutch. You know, I was American, so you know, the Dutch journalists make terrible pawns, right? Like no one, nobody cares, right? Uh, I mean, Charles Taylor wanted an American to to bargain with because he was besieged and he needed some leverage to like force a solution that was good for him. And that's, that's what I was about, I think. And uh, so my buddy was in his, you know, he, he wasn't being hunted, right. It was just me. I got a question. A lot of people say that, that, that when they don't like America, but it's a reassuring feeling in your heart that you know that they, someone will come get you. I mean, I, I, yeah. 
I, I mean, look, ultimately, I, like you're out, we're out there hanging out by ourselves. If we, if we get wrapped up and then someone uses it, you know that there, there are people back here that'll, that'll come get you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's other, other Western nations particularly will, will do that. America just has such incredible resources. I mean, you guys probably know the numbers, but the U.S. Navy is, what is it, like 10 times larger than all the other world's navies combined or something insane like that, right? Like, so, you know, America just has incredible resources that, that they can call on. You know, Belgium, what do they got around the world? You know, they don't, I mean, whatever, like the Holland, like they just don't have those resources. Um, but yeah, I know it is enormously reassuring. And I, and I tell you, like around, I've worked in, in indigenous populations all around the world. And people are definitely leery of America because we're so powerful. Uh, they're also hugely admiring of America and most people want to come to America. And those, those feelings are sometimes in conflict with each other, but they're, they're, they're very, very common everywhere in the world. Um, I would agree with that too. I mean, you see it, you still see it. And I noticed when we travel around too, to, to make uh, to your point, when you, when you travel around the world, you'll see our, our, our flag flying and our military uniforms walking around. Most countries don't have that. You won't see uh, their uniforms walking around in other countries. Right. Especially right. ours. You know, yeah, America especially, has, especially really ours, has a, yeah. unique, a unique role in the world. And it's hard to be this big and this powerful without being loved and without being feared and without being hated. You know what I mean? I mean, we're just, we're so big, we're going to be, every kind of reaction is going to, is going to come to us. And that, you know, and, but we do get all of it. And, you know, I've heard people say that they hate America and then ask how to get a visa. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. whatever. I mean, it's all it's crazy. And and if we if Americans were in that position of being if America were a, a small, weak country and there was a really big, powerful country somewhere, we'd be having the same reaction to that. You know, yeah. that's just a human that's human nature. I, when you hear people talk about why is America always getting into skirmishes around the world? I'm like, well, we're made up of everybody. If something's going down in the in the in their old country, they got family members back there. Or just ahead. I mean, we, we pay attention to it. We we're mindful of all that. We're also the de, the de facto protectors of the world supply chain and the shipping routes, right? I mean, essentially, it's the U.S. Navy that protects all the global transfer of oil and goods and commodities all around the world through the shipping lanes. You know, it basically falls to America because we have the most assets, and our economy is so huge that if there is a problem with the global su supply chain, it hurts us disproportionately more than anybody else because we're just the biggest. So, so, you know, there's a lot of economics that go into that role. And, you know, frankly, I think even though many countries won't say it, I think they're at least quietly grateful that, that someone is monitoring some of these super dangerous uh, oceanic passages that trade, trade routes pass through. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it could be worse. We, we could be expecting them to fly our flag over them. When you got the big boy on the block, that's that's cool enough to let everybody else do their thing. We're just trying to keep the yeah. the routes up. When in other countries, yeah. if they were the big boy, they'd be like, "Hey, you got to raise our flag over yours," and we don't do that. Right, right. You got a you got a new book coming out, Freedom. Yep, that's right. It's my first book since Tribe. Uh, it's about how freedom works, and it's not about today, and not about America today. It's about the last ten thousand years and how humans have maintained their autonomy in the face of more powerful foes. What inspired it? It's just such a powerful word. You know, it gets used and misused all the time by political factions, by people. Um, it's, it's grossly misunderstood. And it's a, 
you know, it's a core human value. You know, if you don't have freedom, you your human dignity is at risk. And um, so I wanted to understand how it works. And the book is divided into three sections, uh, run, fight, and think. So the first, in the last 10,000 years, the first tactic for maintaining your autonomy in the face of a more powerful foe is to, ju is to just avoid them, just be super mobile, like the Apache in the American Southwest, unlike the Pueblo societies that got rolled by the Spanish immediately because they're rooted in place. You know, they're very wealthy, they had agriculture and they lived in these villages on top of mesas. Um, the Apache were poor and mobile. And, and because they could run away, because because they could hide, uh, they remained, they retained their autonomy almost until 1900. But basically, if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. And uh, humans are the only mammalian species where a smaller individual or a smaller group can outfight a larger one. And so I looked at the dynamics of that, both in like mixed martial arts and boxing, but also on the on the on the battlefield, I looked at the Montenegrins uh, in the early 1600s. They was this wild mountain tribe in Eastern Europe, and they were invaded by the Ottoman Empire um, in early in, in the early 1600s. They were outnumbered 12 to one, right? They were invaded with artillery and cavalry, outnumbered 12 to one, and the Montenegrins just annihilated the Ottomans. Um, the fact that humans can do that, either in a street corner fist fight, the smaller guy can win, or in a situation like Montenegro in the early 1600s, the fact that humans can do that means that there is a possibility of freedom. I mean, otherwise, the American revolutionaries could not have defeated the Brits. Um, and then finally, think. I mean, if you if you can't outrun, outrun them and you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And that's where um, some of the uh, sort of radical movements uh, that occur in countries like, you know, uprisings against di dictators, things like that. The labor movement in this country, you know, around 100 years ago, the, the Easter Rising in Ireland, where the Irish rose up against the Brits. That's where this sort of tactical strategic chess game comes into play, um, where the, the overwhelming force of the government and the military still might not win against a, a popular uprising. I was... I Red Empire of the Summer Moon again to, to the Comanches, the Indians. I mean, the, the way they fought, and those smaller bands that can get in and create all that. Guerrilla warfare tactics, what we call them this day and age, right? But it's their ability to fight together. It's like that war tribe. When they were talking about how they had their, their war chief, the chief of the tribe was different from the, the war chief. It's kind of the same way in the Navy. We have chiefs throughout the Navy, and they were right. in charge of certain battle points. When they would ask who's in charge, it's like, well, that's a relative term to what you're doing and where you're at. Because when we were out in the battlefield, the chief was running the show. And if they if they killed him, the the they would disband. They didn't know what to do. But his right. the power that runs through the the coupling of, of humans together, man, is is unbelievable. It's like attaching it all together. It's an energy that's unstoppable. And here and here's the interesting thing about freedom. So the first first and foremost, if you can't defend yourself and your community, you're not going to be free for very long. I mean, history shows that you will be killed and enslaved or oppressed by an aggressive neighbor. I mean, that's just what happens in human history. You have to be able to defend yourself, right? Um, but then that means that within your community that you're defending, the individual has to have freedom. It has to be a fairly egalitarian society, right? If there are really powerful people within the society that can oppress other people, that's not free either. So the whole trick for human freedom is to be militaristic enough and well-organized enough, enough to defend yourself against an enemy, but also create an equitable society at home. 
So peace the, loving and free things, and yeah, that's tough, right? That balance, tough. that's a it tough can, balance, man. It can be done, but but you know, ultimately, it's a question of who do you owe your allegiance to. So I looked at the Pennsylvania frontier. So a lot of settlers in the 1700s, um, for economic reasons, political reasons, they fled the colony, they fled the East Coast, which was there was a lot of social control by the government and by the church. And some people, sort of Daniel Boone type characters, just didn't want people on their backs, right? And they went into the wilderness, which of course is a place of enormous freedom and enormous danger. And so what happened with those people was that in order to survive in the wilderness, particularly during the Indian Wars, which were a, a, a bloody, bloody mess, right? On both sides. I mean, it was yeah, horrible. brutal. Horrible, yeah. Um, what these, the settlers needed to do was have sort of local defense packs where you, particularly the adult males, uh, vowed, basically vowed to commit their life to defending the community. And if you were not willing to carry a gun and a scalping knife and a tomahawk at all times and fight at a moment's notice and give your life if necessary to defend the community against an Indian attack, if you weren't willing to do that, you were not wanted, right? So you were free from the government but not free from the expectations of your own local community. Basically, no one's, we were talking about before, if, so, if you go, if you're in danger by yourself, it's terrifying. It's not exciting, it's terrifying, right? Humans don't survive in nature by themselves. They need other people. And as soon as you have a group, a survival group, you are indebted to that group, right? You have to respect its norms and you're not free from the norms of that group. So the whole trick is, how do you pick a group, whether it's a neighborhood, or a platoon or a nation, how do you pick a group that you're willing to die for? Like that's the, <clears throat> or at least make some sacrifices for an answer to. That's the whole trick to human freedom. Back then it wouldn't have been that that difficult to create that bond because things were so hard. I mean, everyone had yeah. to kind of pitch, you had to do something, right? That's right. The irony I think about modern society, I mean, we live in a, a, a very, we, we are very lucky to live in an in a, in a, in a affluent Western society, to live in America. But the, the downside, there's a downside to everything, right? The downside is that the, the, the easier things get, the less of a sense we have of um, belonging to a group. We don't need the group to survive, right? You don't need to live in a, you're not in a survival group. You don't need a survival group to go to the stop and shop and buy dinner, right? You, don't, you know what I mean? Like, the, you know, the, and that, that loss of community, that the survival community that humans have depended on for tens of thousands of years we live in a society that is so wealthy, we actually don't need that survival community. So we lose the sense of owing anything to anyone. And frankly, it feels good to owe something and to make good on your promise and your and your good word as a person within the community. That actually feels good. It doesn't feel bad, it feels good. And a lot of people are deprived of that feeling until there's a hurricane or a tornado or whatever. And um, and there, there's a real human loss there. Uh, that's a yeah, that was amazing perspective. That was an interesting point too. The, the the when you were talking about how the we can wake up to fight we, at the at a moment's notice, like especially it's been trained in us. But but more civilized we get in our country is like we train all the civilians like, hey, no violence. You know, you talk it out, and it takes a long time to to get to the escalation of where you do engage. Well, they removed that from us. That, that's how they separated us. It's like yeah. those of us who've been fighting, we have in two different directions. Right. And, right. And, and it, and I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's kind of what's happened. They've removed that. We don't, when we engage, we're not, we don't have to be angry at all. Right. 
Yeah, and makes you know it makes you guys amazing warriors. But then, how do you return a warrior to society where all of the you don't want those reflexes to endanger the people that you fought to protect, right? You don't, you know, you you need to get rid of those reflexes when you're back home with civilians and with children and everything else. So how do you decommission? You know, they, the 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 U.S. Mil- any military creates these incredible warriors. Like, how do you how do you decommission that? And convince the warrior that no, you're back home, but you're safe. You don't need those reflexes. You're it's, good now. It's funny how it's, thin that veil is, right? That, that's true. That, 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 that fine, you have two people sitting right beside each other in the same country, living in the same town, doing the same things. But that's the difference, though. One never had to see how hard it was. And saying we yeah. can say that with our, like, we never didn't know how hard it was. And they get mad because we don't appreciate that. Well, it's like, well, why would you, why would you make it easy then? Why would you work that hard to make it this easy for me for to yell at me because I don't appreciate it? It, that's that'll always be the you got to think maybe, maybe some civilizations back in the day didn't allow it to advance like that so they could stay humble so that wouldn't happen so you would always appreciate what you have right well i would say that the smaller the the smaller the group the easier it is for everyone oh, to sure, yeah. understand and identify with everyone's experiences the women given birth that's a dangerous job i mean you know like that's uh, the before western medicine the mortality risk for women giving birth was 1% per birth. So if you're a woman and you have five kids, you, you're running a 5% risk of dying in childbirth. Like that's that's the human norm, right? So equivalent to some combat units, right? 5%. Um, so, how, so, but in a small society, everyone is under, understands the experiences, experiences of all these different groups that society needs, right? The hunters, the warriors, the older people that have the stories, that have the wisdom, the people that are they're making the pottery that you cook your dinner in, you know, whatever, like all those tasks are being done by somebody. And the group is small enough that you see those tasks being done right in front of your eyes and you can appreciate them. And that includes warriors. And the warriors come back uh, and they tell their stories. And those stories allow the warrior to unburden himself from what he experienced and allow the community to incorporate those experiences into the entire group. And so what you don't get is this feeling of being an alien in your own society. And I think that's what's so difficult for veterans. I I think is they feel like an alien in their own society that they fought for. That must be enormously painful. We do a great job onboarding people into the military, but we do a lackluster job of removing them from the equation. Yeah. It's just like cancel go and yeah. that can be that is extremely challenging to everyone. Well, it shouldn't be well, like, you should always be in it. I, I that's how I did had to do it in my head. I was like, well, I never got out. I just right. took the uniform off. I was like, anything I'm doing now is an assignment. And I'd have to I just have to military team guy the mess out of it. Like so I ultimately I got assigned to get married and have kids. <laughs> I was like, so I'm gonna team guy the hell out of that, man. If I think about just like just being married and having kids, I can, I can see how that could come down on you. But if it's your job, it's like I just took the uniform off and came off the combat line because com- combat's relative to what you're in. It doesn't always have to be lead slinging. It can be life. Right. So Absolutely. You, you know, if, just as long as you keep in touch with the boys, it's like being on an independent assignment, kind of like you. Yeah. If you could just hear some of your boys like, hey, you're doing a good job. You're in it. You're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. He's like, yeah, but it's hard. It's like, our life's hard. That's yeah. why we're in it. Look, man, the front lines, you can leave the front line, but eventually it's going to find you, right? I mean, we're none of us, I mean, none of us are leaving this deal alive. Where, you know what I mean? Like, I almost died last year. Uh, like, life is hard. And it, you can leave the combat zone, but the hard part of life is going to find you wherever you're living. Cause that's just how it is. And 
and eventually you're you're going to be staring you're going to be staring at the end of your life and and hopefully you've lived a long good happy life um but uh you're not there's nothing you can avoid in a combat zone that isn't eventually going to track you down in your driveway like it did me hey let me ask you this because i'm a i'm an ultra guy how long did it take you to walk 400 miles Oh, we did it. Yeah. Let me, let me just frame this for everybody. So they understand what you're talking about. Thanks for the question. So a few years ago, me and a few other guys, we'd all been in a lot of combat and we walked along the railroad lines um, from DC to Philly. And then we turned West and headed for Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, we called it high speed vagrancy. We were carrying everything we needed. And so my book freedom is partly about this trip. Uh, we were carrying everything we needed on our backs, 60, 70 pounds. And we moved 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 miles a day. We were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and uh, drinking out of creeks and cooking our dinner over fires. We walked through the ghettos and the farms and the wilderness and the suburbs and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's all illegal. So we had to avoid the cops as well. And uh, we did it over the course of a year. So um, actually even a little bit more than a year. We did it in chunks. So we'd walk 50 or 100 miles at a time and we did it in chunks. So it wasn't straight out 400 miles, but we would... You know, we probably averaged 10 miles a day. I don't know. We didn't go crazy. Okay. Still impressive, nonetheless. That was a blast, though, right? It was a blast. I miss it. Yeah. I, I mean... That's a great amazing. story. You know, it wasn't the Appalachian Trail. Like, the wilderness is beautiful. I love that, you know. But this was along the margins of society, right? I mean, we were in and out of towns. We were sleeping on the edge of towns. We were walking through junkyards and ruined factories and yeah, farms. It's its own wilderness, everything. man. It's a human wilderness. Everything the railroad track goes through, we walked through. So... It was an encounter with our own country. You know what I mean? And with ourselves, it was pretty awesome experience. That's really cool. How many of you, how many of your buddies? Uh, Usually there were four. That's cool. Um, So it, it, you know, they varied, you know, sometimes it was just me and another guy. Uh, You know, it sort of depended on who was free when, but um, we, as I say in the book, um, over 400 miles and most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. And that's, you know, there's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. And it was a really powerful experience for us. It is. That, that is something. Uh, I remember when we were in traveling, you get in these places on the globe where it's just you and a buddy out there or you and a couple a few people, close friends. And I mean, out in the middle of nowhere. And like, hey, man, we could be the only ones on this earth right now. How, how would that make you feel? And it, it, you can feel that. It does feel different when you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing else around. It's a, yeah. it's a freeing moment, actually. Oh, it was amazing. And it makes you very close to the people you're with. Sure. Right. But here's the thing. We were in this group. We were free. Uh, whatever. We, you know, we weren't, we were making our own decisions every day. The government didn't know where we were. Our families didn't know where we were. We were accountable to ourselves, but we weren't free within the group. Like, Hey man, you need to get us some water. We need water tonight. We need firewood. You know, we got to put up the tarp if it rains, you know, we got to someone go out there and look for the cops. I think the cops are looking for, you know, whatever you had tasks within the group. If you weren't willing to do those tasks, you're not part of the group. Get out of here. Right. So, yeah, we're free, but you're never completely free because hopefully you're part of a group of people you care about that you want to serve. You want to get the water. You want to get the firewood. It feels good. You know what I mean? Like that's So that's the that's the last word for me. That's the last word on freedom. Out of all the stories that you've covered in the documentaries that you made, what's um, for our listeners? What's what's your biggest never quit advice? that you would give somebody? So when things get really hard, I mean, physically hard, whether, I mean, 
I mean, listen, I run, I've run marathons. I, I, you know, I've carried a lot of weight on in rugged terrain, uh, you know, whatever. When, when things get really hard, the, the biggest trick for being able to do it is to figure out how to turn off your mind and, and, and learn how to not negotiate, not let your mind negotiate with you. Like, hey, your, mind, your mind's a little traitor, right? It'll be like, hey, why don't we take a break right now and then just walk a little more at the end of the day? It's always making deals, right? It's peddling these deals to you. And you got to stop that. You cannot negotiate with your mind. You just have to turn it off. And if you can do that, if you can separate your body and your mind, you can do almost anything. And it's a kind of mental discipline. And um, I learned that when I was a competitive runner when I was young, and it served me my entire life. I can always, no matter how unpleasant, I can always do that. And that, that to me, allows you to, to, to basically do anything until your body just physically fails you. Sound advice. Well, bro, man, thanks for coming on here and spending time with us, man. I enjoyed the hell out of talking to you. And I mean... Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. So I journal. I, I always have. I don't know why I started that. I just kind of I, I jot down notes every, almost every day. Just kind of re, little reminders. I know, and, and I write. But do you do you do that? Do you at the day just kind of like little mental note? I always figured one day, I if I if I lost my capacity to think, I would want my kids or my grandkids to read some of the exploits. And we've probably forgotten half of the stories that we remember. I mean, out of everything that we've, we've been through, you can imagine the ones that we've forgotten. Because when people ask us, it's like, hey, tell me about the most crazy stories. Like, I've probably forgotten that on purpose because I, I can't remember, you know? I tell you what, I don't write every day, but I write down everything that seems significant. So when I was on this railroad, this, this track on the railroad lines, I carried notebooks and I wrote, wrote down every day what happened because everything seemed, every day seemed significant. Um, and just in my normal life, um, I write stuff down. Sometimes I write down things that my daughter says, you know, like just because four-year-olds can be so freaking profound. Oh man. And they'll see the world the with there, the truth, bro. with the clarity that adults will never have. Right. And uh, so my daughter said one thing to me once recently, she said, she said, daddy, you know, I'm small, but I'm huge when I stand in the lights. Cause she was looking at her shadow. It's like, I'm huge when I stand in the light. And I was like, yeah, you are, sweetheart. You're huge when you stand in the light. You know, for me, it had a resonance that it didn't for her. She was just interested in her shadow. Of course. Right? But, uh, but that had a, that statement had such a beauty to it. I wrote it down. So that's the kind of stuff I write. I'm going to have to write that one down. That was actually yeah, pretty right. good. I might be going yeah, on right. a jam wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sebastian, what's, what's up next for you? Freedom's obviously kind of top of the funnel right now, but what else do you guys have coming up? Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be writing about what happened to me when I almost died last last year. And, and I'm going to try to understand in physical terms, in scientific terms, what my dad was doing there and, and what happens when people die and they keep seeing their dead, dead ancestors. I, I mean, I know religious people have a uh, have an explanation for that. And I respect that. But for me, that's not that only takes you so far. I want to understand it a little more profoundly. And uh, so I'm going to be writing a book called Pulse about uh, why we're alive and what happens when we die. That's awesome. How can people follow you, support you, all that good oh, stuff? Yeah, well, listen, my website is uh, SebastianYounger.com. Pretty simple. The last name is J-U-N-G-E-R, SebastianYounger.com. And um, I got a lot of interesting stuff on there, all my documentaries, all my books, and an initiative called Veterans Town Hall, which we're taking nationwide. We're on Veterans Day. Veterans get to speak for 10 minutes each. 
in their town hall to their community about what it felt like to serve in war. Veterans of any war who served in any capacity can talk about any anything they want, uh, respectfully, obviously. Some some are going to be angry, some are going to be proud, some are going to be sad. The whole you get the whole sure. the, the whole mix, right? That you get in war and and it, it you know talking about returning to society as a veteran, that public performance, not performance, that public accounting of what it felt like to serve your country overseas can be very, very cathartic and actually very instructive for the public. And so Veterans Town Hall is a, an amazing thing. If you want to do one in your hometown, there's an easy way to sign up. It costs zero dollars and it's an amazing, amazing experience. And so I would recommend anyone who's interested in helping veterans and veterans themselves to check it out. That's awesome. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Sebastian, thanks again for joining us today. We had a blast. If you haven't already, guys, follow us on social media, teamneverquit.com slash social. Share this episode with a friend. Make sure you go check out Sebastian's book, Freedom. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else. And we will see you guys next week.